Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to this evening's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Eric Siegel, chair of the club's personal growth forum and your host. This evening, we start our series of talks about false narratives, which have been with us a long time. As the famous satirist Jonathan Swift said in 1710, and I quote, Falsehood flies, and truth comes limping after it. So when men come to be undeceived, it is too late. The jest is over, and the tale hath had its effect. Like a man who hath thought of a good repartee, when the discourse is changed or the company parted. The danger, of course, is that false narratives and their cousins, conspiracy theories, can damage the shared fact base on which democracy depends. Whether through distorted context, misleading editing, oversimplification, incorrect extrapolation from a few examples, or just outright lying, the result is the same. There can be a loss of trust in institutions, tribalism, and a search for an authoritarian leader in confusing times, increased stress levels and anger in society, and resulting legitimization of violence. It's therefore important that we look at the causes of false narratives and some possible actions we can take to decrease their power. This talk kicks off our series with a tutorial on the psychology of false narratives and the social and technological factors that make them so powerful today. The next talk on September 6th will be on how to deprogram a friend or family member, and the third on September 29th will be about actions we can take as a society and as individuals to reduce the power of false narratives in our world. Dr. Joe Pierre is therefore with us this evening to start us off with a solid grounding in the underlying psychological and technical factors that are enticing people down the path of false narratives. He's the health sciences clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Biobehavioral Sciences at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and is the author of over 100 scientific papers and book chapters. He also writes the Psych Unseen column for Psychology Today. He's almost finished writing a book on the psychology of belief. He's the recipient of various awards, and he's an expert witness and consultant in legal cases involving delusion-like beliefs and conspiracy theories. So, welcome to the Bay Area and to the Commonwealth Club of California, Dr. Pierre. All right. Well, thanks for uh, having me. I actually just am in the process of moving from Los Angeles and UCLA up here, and so I'm a new resident of the Bay Area, and I'll be taking a position at UCSF in the coming weeks. Um, so I'm a, I'm a townie uh, now, I guess. Um, and uh, I must say I'd never heard of the Commonwealth Club, but then I, when I got here and I mentioned I was giving this talk to some friends and family, they were like, whoa, the Commonwealth Club. So I'm very honored to be here at such a prestigious institution. Okay, uh, I'm always guilty of putting a lot of information and a lot of slides into a relatively small amount of time, so let's get into it. And I'm realizing now as I get older uh, and my uh, presbyopia is getting worse, I might have to... Uh, <laughs> Stand a, a, a pace back. Okay, anyway, so I'm a psychiatrist. I do mainly clinical work, and throughout my career, I've focused on the treatment of individuals with schizophrenia uh, and other major mental illnesses. At the same time, one of my main interests has been the gray area between clear psychopathology and normal uh, human behavior and functioning. And so I have a long-standing interest in what we call delusion-like beliefs, beliefs that aren't actually delusional but bear some similarities to delusions. And so conspiracy theories has just ended up being a very hot topic uh, in recent years, hasn't it? So let me just set that stage for tonight and take us through a brief history of recent conspiracy theory uh, development. Uh, for most of my lifetime, and I think probably for most of you in the audience, conspiracy theories and so-called conspiracy theorists have really been regarded as a kind of fringe phenomenon, uh, complete with the stereotype of a basement-dwelling, tinfoil hat-wearing individual. Uh, but it does seem like that that has changed uh, in the past decade, maybe even in just the five, past five years. So I've been looking at conspiracy theories for about the past decade, 
uh, kind of just as a side interest. And then lo and behold, in 2016, a church-going father of two uh, became convinced that there was a child pornography ring in the basement of a DC pizzeria called Comet Ping Pong. He was convinced that there were children there in acute danger, and he decided to travel across state lines some 300 miles, armed with a loaded AR-15-style rifle against the vice of his girlfriend, I might add. Uh, And his mission was to self-investigate the situation. He got into the pizzeria. He fired some shots through a door that supposedly led to the basement where children were being trafficked. And he quickly discovered that the pizzeria had neither a child pornography ring nor a basement, for that matter. Uh, Police arrived on scene, and he quickly and peacefully uh, surrendered to police, conceding that the intel on this wasn't 100%. (laughs) Welsh ended up taking a plea deal, pleading guilty to assault and a weapons charge. He was sentenced to four years in prison. He was actually recently released, and by all all accounts has been living a quiet life out of the public eye. Now, while it might be tempting to write Welsh off as some kind of kook, the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy theory, of course, was not his brainchild. It was something that had gone viral on the internet that year and had been promoted by the likes of Alex Jones on his program InfoWars. Now, a year later, we're in 2018 now, Cleveland Cavaliers basketball star Kyrie Irving helped to bring flat earth conspiracy theories into the mainstream. And that same year, YouGov uh, performed a survey that found about 4% of the U.S. population believes that the Earth is, um, sorry, that should, yes, the, uh, 4% believe that the Earth is flat, and as many as 16% lacked confidence that the Earth is round. <laughs> that same year, a documentary film came out called Behind the Curve. I was invited to be an expert uh, uh, authority on conspiracy beliefs in that film, so that guarded me my three minutes of fame, and that film uh, surprisingly turned out to be something of a kind of sleeper hit on Netflix. I had all kinds of friends and family calling me up saying, I saw you on this movie that, you know, that I figured no one was going to see. Now, let's talk about flat earthers for a second. Let's keep in mind that flat earth beliefs are not merely about the shape of the earth. That by itself is not a conspiracy theory. But in order to believe that the Earth is flat, you would also have to believe that NASA is the most sophisticated movie studio uh, on the planet, having faked the moon landing, uh, and is in cahoots not, all, not only with the entirety of the U.S. government, but also with every single government around the world that has a space program or has launched satellites into orbit. So it's not just about the shape of the Earth. <clears throat> Now, at the beginning of 2020, of course, conspiracy theories really took off, and the World Health Organization warned us at the beginning of the pandemic that there would be an infodemic, that is, this pandemic of misinformation about COVID-19. Now, it's well known that conspiracy theories flourish during times of societal crisis, so it's no surprise that we've seen conspiracy theories bloom in recent years, but I don't think anyone could have predicted just how much they've bloomed. And now that we're several years into the pandemic, we've all really witnessed how conspiracy theories have emerged, proliferated, and coalesced. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we, um, we heard uh, about this theory that the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus might have originated in the Wuhan Virology Lab. That by itself, again, would not be a conspiracy theory. But we quickly heard also uh, claims that it had been deliberately synthesized as a bioweapon, deliberately released, and there was a big cover-up by China and the World Health Organization. Other uh, COVID-related conspiracy theories have been more outlandish in the spring of 2020, we saw in existing or pre-existing conspiracy theories about 5G, 5G networks, merge with conspiracy theories about COVID-19. And so there were claims that the pandemic wasn't caused by a virus at all or an infectious disease, but was in fact caused by electromagnetic fields emanating from cell phone towers. And of course, COVID-19 conspiracy theories have coalesced with existing conspiracy theories about vaccines. Uh, So I think everyone in this room has probably heard that uh, perhaps COVID-19 was a a plot orchestrated by the likes of Bill Gates, perhaps in cahoots with Anthony Fauci, um, in order to implant microchips into people for the purposes of tracking them or some part of some globalist plot that involved mass sterilization and population control. Now, everybody's chuckling, 
But a poll from July 2021 demonstrated that belief in those conspiracy theories was not uncommon. So 2021, the threat of coronavirus was exaggerated for political reasons. About 40% of the U.S. population thought that was definitely or probably true. 12 weren't sure. Vaccines shown to cause autism, 18% sure, 25% not sure. And there's the one about the microchip. 20% of the population believe that the COVID-19 vaccine was being used to microchip the population, and an additional 14% were unsure. Meanwhile, as the pandemic went on, Pizzagate morphed into QAnon, uh, which is I might describe as a populist political movement that not only includes the belief that there are satanic worshiping pedophiles that are part of this deep state, but also that those same pedophiles are harvesting adrenochrome from children, Hillary Clinton's drinking the adrenochrome to make herself uh, young and virile. There are lizard people who are uh, operating a shadow government uh, across the planet. There's this thing called the storm. The storm is coming, right? There's going to be martial law, Hillary Clinton, all the other liberals are going to be strung up after military tribunals and executed. Of course, the election um, after that came to pass was rigged. And probably everyone has actually heard that there are people who have these big rallies uh, heralding the second coming of JFK Jr. Because they think he never died. And again, this might sound crazy to you, it might not, but a 2021 poll found that about 15 to 20 percent of the American population did indeed endorse some degree of belief in some of the core tenets of QAnon, such as the business about the Satan worshiping pedophiles. And so as a result, mainstream media has uh, has declared that we're living in a golden age of conspiracy theories. The political left has gone so far as to claim that America is suffering from mass delusion or mass psychosis. Uh, Those on the right have claimed we're victims of something called mass formation psychosis. Now, there's a researcher, a very well-known researcher named Joseph Yusinski at the University of Miami. He was recently um, written up in this Rolling Stone article. They described him as arguably the foremost expert on conspiracy theories and the guy every expert you talk to says you need to talk to. Uh, And I think he's great, and I have had a little bit of communication through the years. But he takes issue with this idea that there's a golden age of conspiracy theories. Uh, And he reminds us that the mainstream press has been declaring it the year of the conspiracy theory for decades, if not centuries. And so he performed an analysis of letters to the editor written to the New York Times going back to the 1800s to see if there was any sort of, uh, if he could prove that conspiracy theory beliefs were actually more common today than they were, say, a century ago or 50 years ago. And what he found was, no, that's not the case. Conspiracy theories have always been popular. There have always been narratives that emerge from time to time, albeit with various ebbs and flows. Uh, And likewise, research from Rand has looked at this phenomenon called truth decay, this idea that we're dealing with now, the idea that we're in this sort of post-truth era where people don't really agree on facts and this sort of thing. That also is something that's ebbed and flowed with time. So you could argue that it's not actually true that conspiracy theories are much more prevalent than they they were in other times in the century. Um, That said... Uh, I would argue that while they might not necessarily be more prevalent, they are more consequential, or I guess as the title to this talk suggests, more powerful than they have been in any other point in certainly my lifetime. Uh, And particularly because the belief in the conspiracy theory is often tied to action. And so by way of example, of course, we talked about microchipping and the vaccines. Clearly, it's been demonstrated that belief in conspiracy theories about COVID-19 were tied to Uh, the slowness of people's willingness to be vaccinated. So back in in November of last year, uh, when 20% of the U.S. population believed the thing about the microchips, only 60% of the population had been vaccinated, with about 30% of Republicans saying that they would not get vaccinated. As we saw in the case of Edgar Welsh, uh, conspiracy theory beliefs are sometimes, rarely, but sometimes connected to violent behavior. And in the spring of 2020, some 80 cell phone towers in the UK were set on fire due to the belief that the uh, 5G cell phone towers were causing (coughs) COVID-19. Conspiracy theories uh, that are focused on racial lines also have a long history of breeding discrimination against racial groups and inciting racial violence. 
here in San Francisco, hate crimes perpetrated against Asian Americans while the president was talking about Kung flu and the Wuhan virus, that sort of thing. Um, hate crimes increased uh, over 5% last year, uh, 500% last year. And so while we might not be living in a golden age of conspiracy theories, Um, based on prevalence, I don't think it's that much of a stretch to claim that we might be living in a dark age of conspiracy theory belief based on the consequences and the potential harms of conspiracy theories today. Uh, And in case you're wondering, this is not just something that's happening here in the United States. This is a worldwide phenomenon uh, going on around the world. Okay, so having set that stage, I'm going to get into trying to give an explanation of what I think is going on from a sort of psychological standpoint. And let's start with a definition of just exactly what a conspiracy theory is. This is my favorite definition of a conspiracy theory stolen off Twitter by a guy named Bern Hobart. He says, conspiracy theories are a genre of science fiction in which most organizations are secretly run by competent people pursuing definite goals. I love that definition. Uh, tongue-in-cheek, obviously, because it really highlights how improbable conspiracy theories are to those of us who aren't particularly drawn to them. Now, when I define conspiracy theories, I like to say a conspiracy theory rejects the authoritative account of reality in favor of some plot involving a group of people with malevolent intent that's deliberately kept secret from the public. And we've all lived among conspiracy theory beliefs. We've all heard of them. Many of them relate to historical events. Uh, Many of them, particularly these days, relate to um, scientific topics, technology, that sort of thing. I guess since uh, we should get a little audience participation, I'd like to use this slide just to see which of these conspiracy theories actually is true. It's like a real, like not just a crazy thing, but actually happened. Princess Diana, okay. Climate change is real. Right, the, the, the conspiracy theory is the other one. That, that it's not real. Uh, anyone else? GOP controlled by Russia? <laughs> you usually get at least 10 hands for Epstein, right? <laughs> yeah, Epstein? Okay, there you go. No, I heard somebody talking about that in the, in the lobby. Yep, yep. Okay. So, first let me address, as a psychiatrist, let me address this thing about um, delusions or mass delusions. So, conspiracy theories aren't delusions. Believing in conspiracy theories is not a symptom of mental illness. There's no such thing as mass formation psychosis, at least you know, in, in psychiatry or in, in a medical sense. And there are, in fact, some um, diff- clear differences between conspiracy theory beliefs and delusions. So delusions that we encounter in people with mental illness are beliefs that are held with extraordinarily, if not unassailably, high conviction. Right? They won't give up that belief no matter what. The belief, by definition, is false. The belief is idiosyncratic, meaning it's generally not shared with other people. It's often based on subjective experience, like I had a dream or I had a vision, that sort of thing. And it's often self-referential. That is, the belief is about the believer. Conspiracy theories, likewise, are often held, not always, but often held with high conviction. They're probably false, but by definition, they're not necessarily false. And as we just saw in the previous slide, sometimes conspiracy theories do end up Uh, end up being true. Um, But generally, we're talking about shared beliefs. These are not beliefs held by a single individual. They're also based not on subjective experience, but information that's out there in the world. Uh, And they're typically not self-referential beliefs. They're beliefs about the world and things that are happening in the world or other people rather than the believer themselves. Now, the other reason why it's important to distinguish between delusions and conspiracy theory beliefs, um, is that conspiracy theory beliefs are very common. So surveys have consistently shown that about 50% of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory. That's been replicated in studies uh, here in the U.S. over time, as well as in other countries. And so, in fact, a 2019 poll found that about 64% of Americans believed in at least one conspiracy theory, with anywhere from 52 to 85% of countries in Europe um, believing in at least one conspiracy theory. So this is normal to believe in a conspiracy theory. This is not mental illness. Or if it is, we have to revise what we mean when we talk about mental illness. Now, what is it about conspiracy theories that are enticing and appealing to people? One thing is simply that they're entertaining. Uh, Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, wrote, uh, everyone loves a conspiracy theory. So they provide narratives that are simply more interesting and exciting than the boring old truth. So that's part of it. Now, psychologists have been doing research over the past decade or so 
really trying to identify like what makes certain people more likely to believe conspiracy theories than others. And mostly what they're doing is these associational studies where they look at people who are rate more highly on scales that measure conspiracy theory belief, and then they look at other what I call uh, psychological quirks or cognitive biases that are associated with that propensity to believe in conspiracy theories. So some of those things that have emerged from that kind of research include, include the need for what I call the three C's, certainty, control, and closure. That helps explain why conspiracy theories tend to prop up, pop up during times of crisis. There's a lot of uncertainty, there's fear, and so conspiracy theories provide a kind of tidy narrative, right? The death of JOK, JFK, it wasn't just a lone gunman, you know, presidents aren't just in danger of being shot any day, this was a deliberate plot, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So in theory, that might make you feel more comfortable, although research has shown very clearly, unsurprisingly, that people who believe in conspiracy theories don't feel safer because of the conspiracy theory belief. Need for uniqueness is another one. This is the idea that you might believe this because you feel you're like you're privy to some special truth and the rest of us sheeple, uh, you know, or got, have the wool pulled over our eyes. Uh, there are certain cognitive biases, like, for example, hypersensitivity, hypersensitive agency detection refers to the belief that everything happens for a reason or due to some higher purpose or power rather than ran, random events happening. There is some overlap with... Um, sort of mental health issues like paranoia or a construct called schizotopy. Um, and recent work's also focused on, this is like a real-life academic thing, uh, something called bullshit receptivity, uh, which is basically the propensity to be attracted to or sort of duped by seemingly meaningful statements that are in fact vacuous. Uh, Deepak Chopra is often cited as a uh, prominent producer of that kind of bullshit. No offense to any Deepak Chopra fans. Um, and then the antithesis of that, the opposite of that, is a decrease in analytical thinking. All right, but I don't want to spend too much actually time talking about that research. I'll, I'll, at the end of the talk, I'll give you a reference that summarizes that. And instead, I'm going to talk about my own crazy theory. Um, no, so I think that uh, in order to understand why conspiracy thieves, uh, beliefs are so common, right, 60%, 50% of the population, we need a more normalizing model. And so the model that I have written about in my academic work very simply just involves two main components, mistrust and misinformation. So let's start briefly and go through mistrust. When I talk about mistrust, I'm specifically talking about something called epistemic mistrust. This is mistrust of knowledge or information and specifically authoritative accounts or conventional wisdom. Um, and studies have shown repeatedly that epistemic mistrust is associated with a greater propensity to uh, believe in conspiracy theories. Let me go back and, and make an important point, too. When I showed you the different psychological uh, quirks that are associated with conspiracy theory belief, it's not as if people who have conspiracy theory beliefs have these things and the rest of the people who don't, don't. These are quantitative, not qualitative differences. So people who have belief in conspiracy theories might have some of these more than people who don't. But we all have needs for uniqueness and needs for control and closure and that sort of thing. So, um, <clears throat> and so likewise, we all have certain degrees of epistemic mistrust, right? A certain amount of mistrust is healthy, um, but on the other side of that uh, sort of continuum, there might be less justifiable or less healthy mistrust. In any case, we live in an area of decreasing trust. This is a Gallup poll going back to the 1970s, looking at trust in mass media. And you can see that we're pretty close to an all-time low in trusting one of the main informational sources we have for news and facts in, in this country, right? Less than 50% have good faith that the, the news is fair and accurate. And probably no surprise, uh, public trust in government is really kind of tanked, right? It was in the 1960s up there in the 70, 80%. Now, in the, over the past decade or so, we're hovering like in the 20% in terms of do you trust the folks in, in government in Washington always or most of the time? And of course, we're living in a time of significant political polarization that includes not only mistrust, but a real sense of antipathy uh, that political science describe as affective polarization. Now, there are a number of pathways to this kind of epistemic mistrust. One, as I suggested before, is more pathological, right? You could be just so sort of suspicious or paranoid and mistrustful because of that. 
Uh, but epistemic vig vigilance is also a healthy impulse, right? That we should be skeptical and not just believe everything, right? So this is a little bit uh, on, the, on the spectrum of more abnormal. Uh, another very frequent cause of mistrust has to do with, as mentioned, tribalism, racism, xenophobic attitudes, and politics, which I'll get into a little bit today. But I do want to remind everyone that trust also is some mistrust, rather, is sometimes earned, right? So people mistrust because of trust violations. Institutions of authority sometimes don't uh, hold up their bargain, end of the bargain, and therefore trust is lost because of that. Sort of classic example in the conspiracy theory world is that conspiracy theory beliefs related to HIV, like that uh, the HIV virus was synthesized by the CIA and deliberately put into low-income populations, that those kinds of beliefs are overrepresented in the African-American community, and that has been linked to things like the Tuskegee experiment, right, where in the name of science, you know, bona fide treatments for syphilis were withheld from Af African-Americans, you know, and a whole history of that going back since the start of the country. Okay, so I want to highlight that mistrust doesn't imply pathology. Now, um, science, I think there's some, when we start talking about scientific conspiracy theories or science belief, uh, beyond conflicts of interest and real-life trust violation, I also think there's a couple other factors that are worth mentioning. One is a kind of misunderstanding or, or a lack of appreciation that science is an iterative, iterative process of research. We look again and again in things. So we all get frustrated, like, well, I thought we were supposed to take an aspirin once a day, and now they're saying they don't. Or, you know, HRT for postmenopausal women, like that was recommended then, and now it's not. See, these people don't know what they're talking about. Right? But that's, that's science. Right? That's what science is. We look at that. We collect the data, we establish you know, what supports or doesn't support a theory, and that may be revised later down the line. Okay? So I think sometimes that's lost in translation with the public as a sort of like wishy-washy scientists don't know what they're talking about kind of thing. Likewise, there are some items of legitimate scientific debate, and without sort of infantilizing uh, things, you know, it's a little bit like hearing your parents argue right, as, as a child. Right? If there's disagreement, then you just experience it as chaos rather than being able to understand that sometimes we disagree about things and that's part of what science is. Um, and I think also in terms of the public perception of scientists, there is a long-standing idea that scientists are elitists who live in these ivory towers. And so in the, in the midst of populism as a political movement, populism, right, is this idea that um, you know, the, the people are, are the core of the movement and experts and elites are sort of the root of all evil. And so scientists have been sort of swept up into that as the experts. Okay, so let's, so now we talked about mistrust, let's go on to misinformation, the second component of my theory. And basically my idea here is once you lose trust in informational sources, we then become vulnerable to misinformation that's out there, thereby falling down the so-called rabbit hole. Uh, this is me quoting myself from a paper. I say, uh, although some conspiracy theorists may be genuinely theorizing, most are crafting a narrative based on a synthesis of available information and might be more appropriately described as conspiracy theists. This next quotation is from a psychologist at the University of Michigan named Colleen Seifert. She says, the problem of misinformation in the head, where individuals struggle to maintain inconsistent facts and memory, has been replaced by a problem of misinformation in the world, where inconsistent information exists across individuals, cultures, and societies. So if we want to understand conspiracy theories in a digital age, we have to understand how we form beliefs based on information off that we oftentimes encounter online. And that starts with something I think is now a household word, confirmation bias. This is the best illustration I've ever seen of confirmation bias. This is a comic strip. Uh, so in the first frame, he says, I've heard rhetoric from both sides. Time to do my own research on the real truth. He gets online and he sees literally the first link that agrees with what you already believe. Jackpot. <laughs> Right? So confirmation bias is the tendency to gravitate towards information that supports what we already believe, and we steer away or swipe past information that refutes what we believe. Now, in online environments, and you know, this is sort of the tech, tech world, so many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with these concepts. There's echo chambers. There's these things called filter bubbles that kind of steer us to the information, the, the e internet, the evil internet thinks it wants us to see. Um, and the result is confirmation bias on steroids. Now, why, <laughs> right, this is the one that's well, true, right? Uh, no, so why is it, uh, online information so ubiquitous and where is it coming from? Make no mistake, uh, 
Peddling misinformation and conspiracy theories is a for-profit industry. So there's not only misinformation, but deliberate disinformation. The difference between now and 20 years ago is that misinformation used to be sort of relegated to the grocery store checkout line, right? We recognize the star and the inquirer and that sort of thing. But now in the media landscape that we live in, uh, reliable facts exist right alongside opinion and not so reliable information so that it's not really that easy to tell the difference. And few of us have really ever been trained, like how do you sort out what's real or real not uh, on the internet? And so, you know, we have people like this. I, you know, I, I've had people tell me, no, I know it's true because I saw uh, Alex Jones say it on uh, Infowars, as if that's like a news station. <laughs> okay, so um, we talk these days about the free market of opinion. I like to call it the flea market of opinion, right? So um, within the flea market of opinion that is today's uh, media landscape, if you want to reach a larger audience and if you want to get more clicks, right, we b- operate on this sort of click-based economy online, then it behooves you to either disseminate or piggyback on top of material that's outrageous, salacious, or false. Uh, echoing the, the Jonathan Swift quote, uh, researchers have shown in recent years that in online environments, social media, places like Twitter, fake news travels farther and faster than reliable information. It is therefore a sort of vehicle of commerce. And when I say conspiracy theories are profitable, I don't just mean financially, I mean politically. And so we've seen conspiracy theories promoted in the mainstream news on both sides of the political fence. And of course, we've also seen political leaders using conspiracy theories to their own ends. Now, recalling, of course, that Donald Trump was largely responsible for the birther movement in 2014, um, several years before he took office. The birther movement, of course, was the claim that President Obama wasn't born in this country, didn't have a birth certificate, et cetera, et cetera. You may also remember that during the, the 2016 campaign, he claimed that Ted Cruz's father was an associate of Lee Harvey Oswald. And then, of course, during his presidency, he promoted the lab leak hypothesis about COVID-19, actually saying that he had evidence to support that that was true. And, of course, has also promoted the idea that the 2020 election was stolen. Meanwhile, China has had countered with its own conspiracy theory that COVID-19 actually came from the U.S. It was taken there in 2019 during the U.S. military games. Uh, And Russia has hopped on that bandwagon also claiming that coronavirus is all the Americans' fault. And there would be no, we couldn't have any discussion of a belief in misinformation if we didn't mention that Russia's disinformation machine has been many years in the making and includes not only state-controlled media, but an army of internet trolls and bots that proliferate information, uh, seemingly with the intent of fomenting discord and breeding discontent with democracy in places like the U.S. and Europe. Okay, I think I'm pretty much on time. So I want to wrap up acknowledging that some of the subsequent talks in these series uh, are going to address what to do about it. I want to make sure I say something about that because I never like to just say, well, here's the problem and, you know, I have no idea how to fix it. So based on my framework, I want to make some comments about that. So first of all, I'll talk real briefly about what I call a prescription for a post-truth world. And I sort of summarize this irreverently as the holy trinity of truth detection. These are all things that we can do as individuals. The first is maintain what we call in psychology research intellectual humility. Basically just means acknowledging I might be wrong or I don't know, which it just seems like we're not living in a society where it's encouraged to ever admit that. Cognitive flexibility. This is the idea that I can change my mind, right? This goes back to the idea of science, right? Here's the data, but maybe I'll modify my belief if you give me new information. Uh, my, my freshman roommate uh, in college went on to win the Nobel Prize. Um, and he, uh, he, and he uh, Adam Reese is a physicist who discovered uh, that the um, acceleration of the universe is, is increasing as time goes on. And he, uh, in an interview, really talked about how when he first collected those data from the Hubble telescope, it contradicted everything they believed in physics. So he immediately said, gosh, you know, like, I, I'm probably wrong, and let me look again and again. And like, finally, he said, like, look, the data looks solid. Now we have to modify our beliefs. That's not how human beings think, right? That's how scientists think. That's something that we have to train people how to think like that. And finally, analytical thinking, which I mentioned before, which, it, you know, it sounds like technical and it means like you're real smart and brainy or something. It doesn't mean that at all. Analytical thinking just means slowing down, 
thinking, hmm, this thing I just saw on the internet, is it true? Maybe it's not true. Maybe before I share it with someone else or send it or claim that it's true, I should look what the source of information is. Maybe I should look what's the evidence to support that belief. And the opposite of that is intuitive thinking. The idea, I believe this because it feels right, right? Uh, uh, what's his name? Stephen Colbert uh, talked about truthiness. The idea, it's true because it feels true to me. That's really the more intuitive, more natural way that we think as human beings. Now, um, having said that, having spent a little time talking about individuals, I think if we really want to understand conspiracy theories, we shouldn't understand them as individual psychopathology. We have to understand them as a product of a sick society. So um, I've never been fond of this quotation by Artie Lang, very, very countercultural, well-known psychiatrist from back in the day. But I think it's a pretty good, if we modify it a little bit, pretty good way of summarizing conspiracy theories. They're a perfectly rational adjustment to an insane world. And so in the remaining couple minutes, let me just, uh, actually, we're doing pretty good on time. So let me just say a little bit about what we can do, not as individuals, but as a society in the direction I think we might want to go. So going back to my idea that conspiracy theory beliefs, and really belief in all misinformation, not just conspiracy theories, going back to my model that that's rooted in mistrust, then before we start correcting people and saying, no, you're wrong, and here's what the evidence is, blah, 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 like we have to address the trust problem. We have to acknowledge that trust has been lost. We have to think about how to get it back. Uh, And we have to do that collaboratively. And what we can't do is make this mistake of putting the cart before the horse. That is, trustworthiness must come before trust. We have to earn trust from people. So if uh, we're talking about institutions of authority, whether it's the CDC or what, what have you, the way you cultivate uh, trust is being honest, being transparent, and collaborating with the public, engaging them, letting them in the door, so to speak, giving them a seat at the, the table, so to speak. Okay, so that's, that's cultivating trust. Secondly, there is, I think, a role for education. Uh, it's not, certainly not as simple as just here's the facts and you know, people are going to gravitate to that. But we can, I think, as a society, work on trying to promote uh, science literacy, for example. Um, we can try to teach people how to become better consumers of information, whether they're encountering that online and other pe- or in other places. There's a great little 15-minute uh, uh, piece put out by NPR back in 2019, and my child's only four years old, but I feel like pretty soon I'm going to make him listen to this. This is like the kind of thing we should be having our children listen to on day one, that there's misinformation out there, and here's some tips to navigate towards information that's reliable. I certainly didn't get that kind of teaching in school. I don't know if children are taught that today or not. Now, there's a awesome uh, college curriculum uh, called Calling Bullshit, taught by two professors at the University of Washington, uh, the subtitle is Data Reasoning in a, in a Digital World. So this is a college course teaching students how to navigate uh, online information to decide what's reliable or not, um, So which I think is great. It's, it's a, and the curriculum's right there online. The syllabus is right there online. But we should be starting this in elementary school, right, geared down to younger people, of course. Mm-hmm. Now, the most evidence-based antidote to belief in conspiracy theories and really misinformation in general are what we call inoculation or pre-bunking instead of debunking strategies. That is, beating misinformation to the punch. So if I'm a physician and I'm worried about vaccination, I might say, you know, you might have heard this thing about microchipping. That's not true. And here's the evidence that we know that's not true, right? In fact, I just listened to a program where a, a scientist did a study to try to see if he could detect microchips just to prove that there weren't any in there, right? I mean, like, there's evidence that there's no microchip. Of course, then it was like, well, who, who was that scientist paid by, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, inoculation and pre-bunking, one of the most evidence-based strategies. Having said that, we're pretty bad as a society of beating misinformation to the punch. We are losing that war. Misinformation is almost always there before us, but that's a direction we can go. And finally, uh, reducing misinformation. How do we hold uh, media accountable? How do we think about liability? Um, we certainly in recent years, we've seen some of the major uh, tech companies here in Silicon Valley uh, take efforts to deprioritize, if not even remove um, conspiracy theory information or harmful misinformation. We've seen that with YouTube. We've seen that in Twitter. We've seen it with Facebook now. Uh, the effects of that kind of mitigation are not clear. You know, does it just mean that people will shift and leave Facebook and go to Truth Social or whatever that other thing was? I forget now. Um, 
Will it just embolden conspiracy theory believers to say, you know, you hear that all the time. Well, it was removed, so I know it's true, right? Um, that's what's known as the backfire effect. Uh, and will it just worsen political polarization and hamper discourse? We don't know. This is something I think we'll, of course, grapple with in years to come. I'll end with this slide, which does suggest a new precedent of liability for spreading conspiracy theories that are harmful. And personally, I think that's a positive step in the right direction. And I'll leave. And so I'll end on that note. I'll take questions now. We'll have some Q&A. But I'll also leave you with a sort of food for thought question for you that I don't have an answer to. Maybe people who work in the tech industry do. How can we make truth more profitable? How can we make it more appealing, sexy? How can we get people to pay for truth? So I'll end there. Thank you very much. Oh, I think I was instructed to sit in that chair and pull the podium back to help viewers. Move this up. Might be a little easier. Okay, so we're now going to have some questions from the audience and also from online. Just raise your hand. Uh, When Dr. Pierre recognizes you, I'll run over with a microphone. And for those in the streaming session, please just write your questions in the chat. And I'm going to start with a question from the chat and then a follow-up question from me, and then all you guys and the people, other people on the chat. So first from the chat, why do so many people accept whatever they want to believe without question and ignore any evidence otherwise? Why do these propaganda magic tricks work so well? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's similar to advertising, right? This is psychological manipulation, really, which sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? But this is like we know this is a human propensity, that people gravitate to things that are titillating or that they like. This has been described, uh, some uh, researchers have described our belief system as a psychological immune system. We believe things that protect a stable sense of who we are. And all too often, the way we define who we are, our identity, is based on our beliefs or our values or our ideology. Mm. And so we're now in this era where if if our beliefs are challenged, it's taken as an existential threat. You're not just assaulting me and my belief about the flat earth. You're attacking the essence of who I am. And so all these kind of cognitive biases and whatnot are are designed to protect that, right? You've heard of things like cognitive dissonance, motivated reasoning. So they're all ways to to preserve our sense of, you know, we're good, smart people, and, you know, we have a stable sense of self. So that's what the psychological machinery does, and there's actors out there who are very good at, like, you know, tweaking that and taking advantage of that. Yeah, that that brings up what I was going to ask the which was, you know, why are people so reluctant to change their beliefs? It's as if they join this tribe, yeah. you know, for some reason. They're unhappy at home, and wow, this group accepts me. And now I'm in it, you know, I have the, I have the key. And so I then show up and go, well, uh, you're wrong from an engineering point of view, and now I'm, you know, an idiot, or whatever. Yeah. Of course, I call them an idiot, and then I'm really in trouble. Um, so why... Why is there this psychological need to not, not consider anything else? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon of blaming everything on the Internet, uh, not, not by a long shot. That said, when we are in online environments and social media, oftentimes when we are engaging with strangers, we're more likely to do so when we're trying to argue with people rather than to collaborate, right? So, um, you know, and... and in the COVID era, there is some at least anecdotal evidence that we've stepped away from face-to-face interactions. We're moving more to online interactions. We're inter, you know, we're people are like, you know, working from home here, but they're like like surfing Twitter here, right? And and in those environments, we tend to argue with people versus you know going to a church cookout or whatever. You might meet somebody who's ideologically different from you, but you're probably not going to get into it in the some way in the same way. And part of that has to do with the anonymity of the Internet. I call this the sort of road rage effect. It's like you're, you have free reign now since I don't actually know this other person to jump in there and argue. Not to mention the phenomenon of if I'm just talking to you and we get into a debate, I might very well say, you know, I don't know about that topic. But if I'm in the Internet, I can pretend I do because I can like be Googling it or Wikipediaing it <laughs> as I'm having the argument. No, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, so, I mean, a lot of it has to do with that. And there's just something about arguing that for for certain people this is not a universal trait but so-called trolls and people who do this like they're this is what they do for fun so that's part of it so what's the relationship between 
conspiracy theories and religious beliefs, like mm. people thinking, oh, if I eat bacon and die, I will suffer eternal damnation. Yeah. To me, that sounds like a conspiracy theory. <laughs> but to others, it's a religion. So like, I, I guess like mm-hmm. in your research, yeah. is there uh, an overlap with religious beliefs? Not, not so much directly, but if we go back to some of the things I mentioned about in, intuitive belief, right? The belief, actually one of the first papers I ever wrote as a resident uh, you know, 20 years ago was about the question of faith or delusion, right? I argued that what faith is, maybe should be, but I think what faith is, is an acknowledgement that I don't know. What happens after we die? Don't know. Is there a supreme being? What does he look like? He or she look like? Or it look like? I don't know. But I'm going to choose to believe this thing. That's what I call faith. I'm going to choose to believe in Christianity or Buddhism or whatever. Acknowledging that you might believe something different, and maybe that's reality, but I'm going to believe this thing. That, to me, is cognitive flexibility. I can still have my faith. I can still believe this, but I can acknowledge that I might be wrong, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the sort of mentally healthy way to hold beliefs, whether they're religious or political or otherwise, but that's not how human beings tend to hold beliefs. We tend to do it the other way. I'm right, damn it. And I need to show you that you're wrong. I was wondering, you know, looking at sort of a micro level to a macro level, if you could talk a little bit about, you know, like the development of delusional beliefs at sort of like a fola do versus cultism and conspiracy. Do you see that as a continuum and do you see the dynamic similar or different? Yeah, that's a great question. Pro- probably don't have enough time to answer it. Um, and you can see that I kind of glossed over that by in a general way, saying that delusions are usually not shared, right? So usually if I'm treating a patient and he has a delusion, there aren't 10 other people going, no, I think he's right too, the way you see with conspiracy theory beliefs. But as you pointed out, sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes we do see folia de, right, a craziness of two, an insanity of two, where two people sort of share the, the same belief. Now, traditionally in psychiatry, the way that it would explain is that there's usually a power differential, and that the delusional individual has power over this person and somehow convinces the other person. And so I, I saw a case of this years ago, a mother and son, where the mother had schizophrenia was delusional. Teenage son came in, we evaluated, he had all sorts of very odd beliefs. And we asked him, well, how did you come up with this? Mom told me, she'd been telling me this. So the traditional view is that person might be delusional, but this person isn't. So it's kind of a little bit of steering away from the idea of a true group delusion. Like not everyone is like insane. There's usually that one person. Now in a cult, that's or so-called cult. I don't really like that term, but in a in that kind of environment where there's, there's the charismatic individual and the flock of followers, then you do get into that dynamic, and you can see where people who have beliefs that are you know outlandish, perhaps delusional, perhaps delig- deliberately false and outlandish, have the ability to you know, spread that to other people. Certainly that's something to, that, that we have to acknowledge when we talk about these large groups, group beliefs. Anyway, I could go into more detail, but this is a great question. Uh, I would like to add something to you for further reading. I finished reading Being Wrong, Adventures in the Margin of Error by <laughs> Catherine Schultz, and she goes into great detail about how extremely, extraordinarily difficult it is for human beings to admit they're in error, even when it dawns on them that, hey, I'm wrong. It is so extremely difficult. So if you're going to be proselytizing with the conspiracy folks, mm-hmm. read that book. I was wondering if you were familiar with the Academy of Ideas, and under there they have a section in Pursuit of Liberty, and they speak about mass psychoses. And I was wondering how much you thought this could be a seminal influence to leading to a mass psychosis in society that could be detrimental, such as January 6th or such. Well, again, I would steer away from the idea that this is psychosis. And as a psychiatrist, I'm sort of protective of that word. This is not a mental illness phenomenon. And this isn't novel. We, this isn't the first time we've seen a society in, in, in a mass movement gravitate towards false beliefs, right? That's a political, that's a social phenomenon. So I get persnickety about using the word psychosis, about you know, mass delusion. This is not mental illness. This isn't like, oh my gosh, 60% of the population has delusional disorder or schizophrenia. That's not what it is. That said, there's a great deal to be learned about the social dynamics that govern belief vis-a-vis cults, vis-a-vis political movements, vis-a-vis social movements. I mean, that's really, I think, where the money is at, not so much, you know, shrinks me. Yeah. 
Um, what sorts of individual and societal actions do you think we can take to fight misinformation? And over what timescale uh, would you say that we can make a real shift in mm-hmm. our current misinformation epidemic? Well, I must say I'm not an optimist uh, by nature. I tend to be a pessimist. And I also, along this line of you know, acknowledging that I don't know, I pretty much never make predictions. Uh, so I have no idea what's going to happen. I don't know if you know, we're all going to burn in climate change in the next 10 years or what. So I don't know. I, I think there's things we can do. I think there's directions we can move. Uh, and I go back to the slide I ended with. I think the real thing that we haven't quite tapped into is how can we make, you know, like there's an old Superman slogan, right? Truth, justice, and the American way. How can we make truth actually some universal, objective truth? How can we make that the thing that we all herald and, and you know, honor because that's been lost how do we do that i'm not really sure you know i'm going to put in a plug for the the september 29th talk where we're going to talk about things that we can do as a society okay next over here oh i gotta run across the room oh sorry yeah i gotta make him exercise yeah it's good for um i'm from australia and um by about January this year, we had about 95% of our adult population vaccinated, double-vaxxed against COVID-19, 95% of adults. And I'm just thinking about that and wondering how much do you think this phenomenon is uniquely American and, and, and also whether it has to do with the American education system? Mm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the expression? Uh, you know... Shots fired. <laughs> no, I mean, I will definitely say that I think education is a problem. Now, I do not by any shred of the imagine to think that this is a uniquely American problem. As, as we saw in terms of conspiracy theory beliefs across Europe, there are plenty of places where act- vaccination rates are as bad, if not worse, than they are in the U.S. So not a uniquely American phenomenon. That said, particularly around the political things that I hinted at, that's part of what's going on here in America. Populism, which is a worldwide phenomenon, has taken root here in the United States. And I didn't get into it, but many of these conspiracy theory beliefs are partisan beliefs, right? We talk about climate change, right? That, in general, is a conservative conspiracy theory. Uh, and you could say, well, that's tied to big oil, and you know, they're you know, p- giving money to politicians, that sort of So that's certainly part of the story. Um, now, uh, I won't tell you exactly where I've moved to, but it's north of Golden Gate Bridge, right? Which historically was like the anti-vax mecca of the world. And now, and I looked at this before I decided to move there, uh, has one of the best vaccination rates in California. So going back to what you said about, is there something to be done? Yeah. And it's not just Marin County or United States. Like there's something else going on that I think we do have the power to influence. Oh, yeah. I'm curious about how much you think the proliferation of conspiracy theories just based off of availability heuristics, just the idea that the easier it is for a belief to recall, the more likely we are to recall that belief and then uh, uh, pretty much agree with it. Uh, I'm wondering with the increase of the Internet and things that make particular beliefs just more available, how much of this is just that versus uh, more difficult to diagnose issues? Yep, great question. So like I said, there's a kind of long laundry list of cognitive quirks, various heuristics like availability heuristic are among those. I think the other one that's relevant um, is something called the illusory truth effect, which is kind of related. It's the idea that if you, and this is famous quotation from 80 years ago, if you hear a lie often enough, you come to believe it. That's true psychologically. That's been demonstrated. So even the way sometimes the media might cover something, even if they say that it's false, if it's there, as you said, availability, the information becomes in our public consciousness. Like we've all heard the thing about microchips. So once that's out there, like maybe it's true, you know, and and one thing I didn't mention is that when we have beliefs, it's usually not 100% or zero, right? I believe this 100% or I believe it's 0%. It's like, well, maybe it's true, right? And that's the other thing. So when you hear something like the microchips out there, I mean, I haven't actually looked at the data and the studies and the analysis, so could it be true? Like, I wouldn't have intellectual humility if I said it's 100% false. So when misinformation is out there and it's in this sort of public consciousness, it has a way of fueling false belief or at least doubt. And that's why you look at the flat earth thing. It's like 4% believe it's flat, but 16% aren't really sure because, like, there's all these other people telling me it's not flat and, you know, 
maybe maybe it's not round. Maybe they're right. There seems to be a lot of blame on the supply side of misinformation, including media and the internet. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some discussion or research about on the demand side, where maybe inherently there's people who are craving for misinformation, and the supply side yep. is just catering for the demand. Uh, how much of that can be done through education? How much of that can be uh, corrected over time? Oh, yep. Thanks. Well, that ties into my mistr- mistrust and misinformation model. So the misinformation model is on the supply side, uh, but also on the consumer side when we talk about confirmation bias and that, and that sort of thing. So certainly there's efforts to become better consumers of information. Uh, there's campaigns in other countries, and think including Australia, like uh, think before you click or think before you share and really try to hammer that idea in, into people. So that's on the consumer side about how can we be better consumers of this technology. Then the mistrust side really is all on the, the consumer side. It's right. It's like, why is there this thirst for these counter narratives? Uh, and that, as I addressed, goes into trust, mistrust, and how do we then cultivate a society that's more trusting of leadership, of media, and that kind of thing. And again, back to my final question of how do we make truth from a supply side, how do we make that more appealing? Because right now it's too easy to make money, you know, proliferating bullshit, basically, right? Um, yeah, how, how, do we, how do we tweak that? I think it can be done, um, you know, going back to truth, justice, and the American way. I mean, there, there's ways to do it, and I just haven't seen a lot of movement in that direction. Okay. Over. Yes? <clears throat> yeah, quick question. Um, are there tipping points? So, for instance, let's say a former president gets arrested. <laughs> is, is, but seriously, is there a tipping point where people get more extreme yeah. and go into it, or less extreme and sort of a fever is broken about yeah. you know, uh, election being stolen, for instance? Yeah, great question. And the answer is that it goes in both directions, right? <laughs> so there's this phenomenon called cognitive dissonance. This is the idea that I have this belief, and then I encounter, it could be um, you know, information that... that uh, QAnon's a great example, right? It's like, Trump is going to reclaim the office on March 6th, and there's going to be martial law, and then March 6th goes past. And then you're like, well, wait a minute. I've spent my past two years investing in QAnon. I'm following the Q drops. I'm deciphering the breadcrumbs, blah, 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 if you know anything about QAnon. Um, And now, like, oops, the prophecy didn't come true. So some of the people, indeed, and and people have been written up in the media who have experienced this go, you know what? This was all bullshit. I'm out of here, like, no more of this. You know, I've wasted my life. But some people, and it's proportional to how much in energy you've invested into it, the way you resolve cognitive dissonance back to this idea of the psychological immune system isn't to say, oops, I was an idiot and I've been wasting my life for two years. You double down, right? And you move the goalposts. Okay, Mar- not March 6th, but maybe July 6th. Oh, not July 6th, maybe December, right? And it go- goes on and on and on and on and on. So kind of depends on the individual in part, how much they've invested, in part, perhaps some other features of that person, whether it's the need for uniqueness part and how, how meaningful you become in that movement, what it does for you, and acknowledging that some of the people are making their livelihoods from that sort of thing. Even QAnon, right? QAnon t-shirts and you know, selling stuff online. Like You're not just going to walk away from that if that's been your livelihood. So, Yes? This is in honor of Serena Williams. We're going back and forth on the court. <laughs> okay, so if I'm in a conversation with <laughs> an opposing point of view, a very strident opposing view, when are facts facts <laughs> and, and, and the truth? When they're telling me that's not the fact and that's not true. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why people claim that we're now living in a post-truth world, because there is no agreement about facts and truth, you know, and the president, alternative truths, you know, that, that whole thing, the former president, I should say. Um, so, so that's sort of the dilemma that we're dealing with. And a lot of that has to deal, back with this misinformation idea, that we now have a country that, at the very least, relies on two different sources of information, if we want to break it along political lines. But it's really like 100 different sources of information, right? And that's where the problem of truth and facts come in. It's like, well, you have your facts, and I have my facts. So if you're asking, how do you overcome that? It does sound like we'll have some subsequent speakers that are getting into that. I think the advice that I usually give, you know, I was interviewed by a bunch of media, you know, during the QAnon phenomenon about like, how do you interact with family members who have like gone down the rabbit hole and that kind of thing. And my advice usually for family members, assuming you're not a spouse who's living with someone 24 seven, is to not get into it. 
Come over for Thanksgiving dinner. We're not going to talk about that thing. Sorry, we can talk about that maybe another time. But like, let's focus on some other activity rather than getting into that belief. I understand what you believe. Okay, let's just save that for another time. I mean, I think that's the healthy way we have to sort of recultivate our relationships with people rather than focusing it on the belief thing. And just sometimes you got to dial that off, assuming you're able to, you know, depending on the relationship. I just wanted to mention what I've seen is um, the profitability of the people who seem to be promoting a lot of these conspiracy disinformation campaigns, propaganda, the profitability that of some of the main players is enormous. For sure. Enormous. So uh, it seems from what I see that they don't have a lot of regard for the people who that who are following them as to the information correctness accuracy for sure of the information that they're passing on so i think that's an important point to mention i don't know if it's important to when you're when you're meeting talking to somebody who's mm. opposite of the facts of what you know who you're talking to and say hey you know how much money these people are right. make i mean you know <clears throat> and what they're doing. And when you see something like the Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. you know, situation and the trial that just happened and you see what Alex Jones did through all those years, it, it just, you know, so there's that aspect, the yeah. profitability of what they're doing. Yeah, I refer to this as the, the disinformation food chain. And you have these apex predators at the top of the disinformation. Disinformation, again, means deliberate misinformation, right? That they're purposely top-down spreading, spreading that information. The, the funny irony about conspiracy theory beliefs is that oftentimes conspiracy theory believers say, like, follow the money, mm-hmm. right? It's always like, oh, you can't believe the Fauci because he, you know, worked on a drug study 30 years ago, you know, that kind of thing, right? The conflict of interest. But rarely do they look at the follow the money of the conspiracy theory belief. And there's many, many anecdotes and stories of whether it's in the anti-vax world or what have you, of the money that's actually funding that belief and for what purpose. So that's referred to as sometimes as jujitsu persuasion, this idea that, like, as you're suggesting, maybe we can, you know, use the thing you're telling me to do, which is follow the money, and kind of flip that back on you. Does it work? Mm, You know, it just kind of depends because there's this automatic, you can just write that off. It's, oh, I don't care. I'm just going to pay attention to this thing. So again, I think the money is... It's really less about trying to convince people that they're wrong, you know, in terms of our interpersonal relationships. I think we have to ban- abandon that hope. Um, and, and, and sometimes I re- have this memory of when I was in high school, we had this kind of mandatory kind of debate class. And it had to do with, you know, American history or some such thing. And the assignment was always you had to defend this side of the debate and argue your point, And the other side of the class had to debate this one. And you were basically graded on your ability to defend that belief, not to listen to the other person and say, you know, gosh, maybe you're right. And maybe like there is a middle ground or a middle truth and, you know, that kind of thing. So I think that, again, is kind of lost when we when we talk about how we interact with people. There is this kind of like, I, how do I, you know, the question shouldn't be how do I convince the other person that they're wrong? I think that's not the direction that we should go when we're talking about people who are our friends or loved ones and that kind of thing. Yeah, I have... One, one last question I want to take from uh, the, the viewers, and then we'll wind up. Um, how does modern-day marketing and media compel us to believe? You know, what tactics are they using? You know, make us want things that, that we don't really want. Yeah, well, I did write a blog post uh, where I said that, you know, I, I, I'd become a conspiracy theory believer myself um, because, you know, it came after uh, Cambridge Analytica and, the, you know, the Facebook scandal and that, that sort of thing. I mean, as I mentioned before, this is like the psychology of advertising, which has been going on, what, for centuries, if not millennia, certainly heightened now in, in the you know, way we are able to reach people informationally. It's all based on exploiting our little foibles, uh, our cognitive biases and, and our foibles. So that's a huge part of what's going on now. Um, and, you know, I, I don't know what to say in terms of the answer, whether it's, you know, unplugged from Facebook or that kind of thing. But this is a big part of what's going on. It's like people are tweaking these propensities for us. 
you know, I spend time on Twitter probably more than I should in part because I sort of enjoy it in part because I, it's sort of my lab in a way, like I see what goes on there, but I myself find myself, you know, whether it's getting into it with someone or like, you know, that, those kind of forces are indeed very powerful yeah, I, I and, they, and they sort the, of steer us in that direction. Yeah, the computer science part of me, you know, when you are on Facebook and you answer those little surveys <laughs> or you, Facebook can see what you're interested in, right? They know this. And so they're going to feed you more stuff in that general area because their goal is to keep you on Facebook. And so now you see a little bit from this other group, you know, you join a, a new mom's group. And then you eventually get fed something about, you know, vaccines because those two groups overlap. You know, this is all, without looking at it, we just notice that these people tend to populate both groups. So let's show him something. Let's show her something from the vaccine group. So now you're in the vaccine group because, gee, you clicked on a few things. And so now Facebook knows that you'll, you'll look at this group. So they'll show you more things. Oh, now that you're in the vaccine group, Let's move to this other group that has overlap. And the next thing you know, you're down into the tunnel. But it's based on all this information that's been accumulated. And that's not a conspiracy theory, right? There's a great uh, summation of what you just said uh, in a New York Times series that ran a year or so ago called Down the Rabbit Hole. You can listen Mm. to it on audio. It's fantastic. And it sort of takes you through stories of how people did exactly that. It started off, you know, supporting Obama and Clinton and somehow step-by-step step found them further afield of that, you know, on YouTube and watching videos and what kind of thing. Okay, really well, helpful. we're running a bit over. So our gratitude to Dr. Joe Pierre for being with us today. <laughs> and we're also grateful to our audience here, as well as to those listening on the recording. And so now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 119th year of enlightened discussion is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.